if you will, grab your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 4, get a copy of God's Word before your eyes this morning. Now last week we learned about Cain and how he jealously murdered his little brother Abel, which I just said with too much excitement in my voice, that doesn't sound right, It's not what I mean. Um, you, you see, when our all-knowing God confronted Cain, Cain flat out lied to the Lord. And in an act of grace, God did not end Cain's life right there in that moment, but he does punish him by making the ground that this, this farmer was so desperate upon or dependent upon, he made the ground that would no longer make crops for him. Uh, Cain was now to be a wanderer in the land. And Cain responds selfishly on brand with what we've seen of him so far, fearing that his relatives might seek vengeance and kill him later on. He, he, he said his punishment was more than he could bear, right? Somehow this is not fair, and, and you think, oh, so now is when the Lord's going to smite him. But again, graciously, God puts a, dis, a, a distinguishing mark on Cain and, and declares that if anyone kills Cain, if they come back and get vengeance on him, their punishment is going to be seven times worse than what Cain's was. And finally, Cain went east to settle in the land called Nod. But... Cain doesn't go away sorrowful like we tend to think. Uh, he goes away like, like many after punishment. He, he goes away filled with this electric anger at God. He goes away resistant to repentance. And so we wonder, how, how'd, that, how'd that turn out for Cain? And I think we all think, well, it couldn't have turned out too well for Cain. And, and, and yet, surprisingly, as you're going to see in a moment, in a lot of ways, Cain flourished. He starts a family, he establishes a city, his descendants develop a civilization and music and tools and weapons. How is that possible? How can that man flourish? How does a guy that hates God flourish? You, you see, this is what is theologically called common grace. It's common grace because it's the grace, the goodness, the kindness that God shows, not just to his covenant people, not just to Christians, but, but grace that is bestowed on all of creation, even individuals in outright rebellion uh, and those who worship false gods. Now, Jesus in Matthew 5.45 explains how God's common grace benefits all of, all of humanity when he says this, when he says, for God makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends his rain, uh, rain on the just and on the unjust. And so look for that as we read the passage here in a moment. But, but also, I, I want you to notice as Cain's line flourishes culturally, and we are going to see that, that there is also this dark underbelly. You, you see, the, the, this God-defying culture as a whole doesn't truly flourish in all the ways that you want to flourish. Now, let's, let's get to the passage, right? Uh, if you remember, this is the, the second of the three divisions, right? Each of them marked by someone knowing their wife, right? Um, and so we're going to be starting in, in Genesis 4, verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methusael, and Methusael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of, in of all instruments of bronze and iron. His sist the sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, 
Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we live in an era of hurry, a time of multitasking. Even when our body is at rest, our minds continue to move in anxious patterns. In this moment, please give us respite. Give us true presence. Now, Lord, please make the preaching of your word fruitful. And that is, enlighten our minds to understand this portion of your word we have just read. And may that understanding change us as only you can. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So here's Cain, right, who somehow meets a woman uh, who doesn't mind whatever this distinguishing mark on him is. Maybe it actually is a tattoo, as some have assumed, right? And she really digs tattoos. I don't know. Uh, but, but also, more significantly, as you think about this, this, them coming together, right, that she must be able to see past the fact that he has killed his little brother and still remains unrepentant, at least as far as we see. Uh, oddly, of more concern to people in the era that you and I live in is this question. Did Cain marry one of his sisters? And, and we wonder that, right, because... Well, who else is available? We're doing the numbers. We're like this. That's not far enough for there to be anybody else. Well, well keep in mind, they, they lived for hundreds of years, right, each individual at this time, possibly because disease and cancer just haven't developed yet. We don't know for sure, but that's how long we're going to see these numbers later on. Now, it's feasible that Seth was born long before Cain meets his wife. Verse 25, right, that's where we see that happen with Seth, isn't necessarily in chronological order. It might actually be that you take these and you put them in parallel ways, or, or you know, shift them a little parallel, uh, is what's going on here. And, and further, right, in chapter 5, we're going to learn that Adam lived 800 years after the birth of Seth and had many more sons and many more daughters. So maybe, maybe Cain's wife is actually a niece descended from Seth or a cousin, right? That cleared that up for you, right? Just kidding, right? It's still weird, right? <clears throat> and people still do that today. In fact, when, when Laura and I were getting married, you have to go down to the courthouse and you have to register, I think it's for the marriage license itself, but the attendant there asked us, are you related by blood in any way? And we were like, what? Does anyone say yes to that? And they immediately were like, yeah, you would be surprised, but they do. Uh, right? And, and in fact, the, the politician, you probably know his name, Rudy Giuliani, right? He had to say yes to that because he actually married his second cousin. A few other names you might know. Edgar Allan Poe and Darwin both married their first cousins. Now, not to be outdone, Cleopatra, and when I say Cleopatra, yes, that Cleopatra, right? She married two of her actual biological brothers. Now, to be fair, while, while the Mosaic Covenant will establish laws against marrying your siblings and, and, and the such, right, in Cain's day, at this point, there is no taboo against that. There is no prohibition against that, uh, even marrying your sister. So it's quite possible that that's, that's what it is. <clears throat> now, and in verse 17 here, right, 
uh, we read Cain biblically knew his closely related wife, and nine months later she gives birth to a boy, and they name this boy Enoch. Now Enoch means dedicated, and uh, the idea here is, is something along the lines of uh, Cain is establishing his, his own line, right, and, he, and he's dedicated to this line, and it's in this defiance against God is kind of the undercurrent here. And so Cain names the city Enoch after his own son. And you and I, we don't think anything of that. We have towns all around us that are named after people. My, my town of birth, Houston, right? It's named after the great Sam Houston, actually from Tennessee. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, the significance here is that there, there's no reference to God at all. Again, everything we see with Cain is going to be this way. And, and Abraham in Genesis 12, right? When he, he has this opportunity to name this land, what does he name it? He names it Bethel, which means house of God. And, and so the naming of this city here even, and, and, and it's not explicit here, but it really foreshadows everything that we're going to see uh, of what kind of a, a culture here is, is going to develop that does not acknowledge God at all. In fact, building the city at all is, is a spiteful move of Cain to begin with. If you remember, God said Cain was to be a wanderer. The ground wasn't going to grow for him. You're going to have to go and wander from now on. And here is Cain once more rebelling against God. you right. Instead of wandering, he builds this city here. And yet, the, the, the common grace of God here, right, in Cain, you know, for Cain, rather, allows that the creation mandate that was given to Adam in Genesis 1.28 continues even in the line of Cain, right? As Cain and his descendants we see here are fruitful and they multiply, they subdue the earth, and they exercise dominion. Now, for the next few generations, the only thing we get are those names that I really have trouble pronouncing, you probably noticed. Uh, but then the focus is on this one individual, a guy named Lamech, who is the great-great-great-great-grandson of Cain. And the first thing we learn, learn about Lamech is that this man is the first polygamist. Um, that is, he is the first one to have more than one wife. And again, this flies in the face of God who established in Genesis 2.24 that marriage was, was, was to be this one flesh union between one man and, and one woman. And sadly, the, the, the evil that is polygamy will be established in the line of Seth well, the, you know, the other line that we're going to look at later. It, and, it, and it shows up far too often, any of it's far too often, but too often. Uh, and, and, and those involved in these polygamous relationships, they never flourish relationally if you go through and you see how it goes in, in the history of, of Scripture. Um, now, one of Lamech's wives is named Ada, which means ornament, uh, which many presume tells us that she was chosen for her beauty. Uh, she's what we might say in our modern slang, a trophy wife, right? Uh, uh, his other wife is named Zilla, which means shade. Most believe this describes long, luxuriant hair, but again, we can't know for sure if that's what that's about. <clears throat> so, um, you know how some couples name their kids all with the exact same letter? I don't know if that's to make things easier. Um, I don't know. Just to give an example off the top of my head, let's say... Ezra, Evangeline, uh, Elias, just, just to give an example. Um, you know, but, but others will name their kids with these words that, that rhyme. In fact, uh, Travis, one of your elders, uh, he, he knew of these twins who were named Orlangelo and Lamangelo, but spelled orange jello and lemon jello. <clears throat> I kid you not. Uh, so if you name, need name ideas, there you go. Uh, so, so Lamech and his wife, right, they, they give names to their sons that are kind of like that. You might have noticed it when we go through it. It sounded like the same two guys because you got Jubal and Jubal and then Tubal dash Cain, right? And that's right. The last one is actually named after his murderous great, 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 great grandfather. 
Uh, and, and there is one daughter, she's listed here, right? Or at least one that's listed, Nama, and she was lovely. At least that's what her name means, lovely. Um, now, it's Christmas time right now. <clears throat> if you're like us, how many of you are getting in your, in your mail uh, these, these cards that come, the birthday cards, and they got great pictures on them? We, we've been getting a bunch of those. I love them right now. If you've sent us one, they're hanging in our living room so we can see them all the time. Um, but have you ever gotten one that comes with one of those letters that is really mostly just bragging about the children's accomplishments that year, uh, one after another, all about everything they've done. Now, now, verses 21 through 23 here are basically Lamech's humble brag Christmas letter, so I couldn't resist this time of year just writing the contents of those verses in, in Christmas form to let you kind of hear them that way. So here it goes. This is, this is the Christmas letter. Right? You open it up. <clears throat> it's got a great picture. They all look wonderful. Merry Christmas to you guys. Probably wouldn't have said that. Can you believe another year has already passed us by? It's been a busy year for the Lamech family. Sadly, we don't see our son Jabal as often as we'd like, since he's already head of the ranching division and has to camp out in tents most of the year. Our second oldest, Jubal, is doing great. He's invented instruments and started a string and brass band that is literally the best in the entire, probably flat world. And our youngest, Tubal Kane has started a flourishing blacksmith business that makes tools and weapons from bronze and iron. As for our daughter, Nema, she hasn't done anything noteworthy, but she still exists. <clears throat> Hope you and yours have a joyous holiday season. Love, the Lamets. Right? So there, there you get it. And yet, right, in all of that, in the midst of that humble brag going on, is a, a significant discovery going on here. See, Cain's descendants have developed a robust culture of animal husbandry, of arts and, si and music, of science and, and metalwork, right? It's not AI and drones like we're doing in our age, but this is technology at its finest at the time be being, right? They, they are producing wonderful things from the earth. This is part of what we call just widely culture. You see, in, in, in recent history, a great deal has been written regarding how we as Christians, how the church should relate to the wider culture. What, what does that look like? It's a fascinating subject. And if you're, if you're interested on it, let me just suggest a few books you might read. Tim Keller's Sinner Church is one of them. Uh, D.A. Carson's Christ and Culture Revisited, which, which is really just a, an update and a response to Richard Niebuhr's classic Christ and Culture, without the revisited, right? And in that book, Niebuhr lists five ways that we might interact with the culture. Uh, here, here's what they are. One, Christ against culture. Two, Christ of the culture. Three, Christ above culture. Four, Christ in culture and paradox. And the last one and, uh, is Christ the transformer of culture. Now, I, I put a, a, short, uh, a short summary of each of those uh, on the sermon calendar page for you on the, our website if you're interested in that. You can go read a little bit more about that. Um, but, but for now, though, at our time together right now, I, I just want to focus on, on two ways, two wrong ways, actually, that we as disciples of Jesus often view this relationship to culture or view culture itself, right? And, and the first wrong view it, it, for us is to believe that nothing good, nothing enjoyable, nothing of worth can come from a secular culture, one that rejects or ignores God. And that view sounds very holy, and I don't say that lightly. It really does sound incredibly holy, right? But, but it, it leads to a very self-righteous way of life. It, it leaves no common ground between you and the culture in which you dwell, between Christians and, 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 and the people we want to engage, right? And the, the people that we are called to share the gospel with. 
But, but more to the point here, right? By God's grace, those who regard or disregard or even rebel against God, they, they, they still can make beneficial contributions to the culture and to society, right? Uh, atheists, Alan Turing, right? Helped develop the modern computer. When, when you turn on anything electrical in your house, right, and you don't think much about it, right, you have, you have reason to be thankful to, to the atheist Nikola Tesla, or actually thankful to the Lord for the work that was done in the life of Nikola Tesla, Tesla rather. Um, some other cultural advancements by, by those that sadly do not or, or did not know the Lord, or Lord Jesus, is, is, is Edward Jenner, who created the smallpox vaccine. Again, in our era, we're like, yeah, so what? There is no smallpox. Exactly, right? Uh, Steve Jobs, who, who helped put the phone in your pocket, uh, scientists Albert Einstein, Marie Curie, uh, Francis Crick, who discovered the structure of DNA. I didn't know that until this week. Uh, you, you can appreciate the works of filmmakers such as Wes Anderson, right? Or authors like J.K. Rowling or Isaac Asimov. Or, you know, for, for all the evil that we, we, we see in the world today, there has also been incredible progress that we see. And much of it has actually been driven by those who are overwhelmingly apathetic to God or even against God. And I know that sounds weird, but we have reason to be thankful to the Lord for a lot of the progress that has been made this way. In 1820, the global life expectancy was 30 years old. Right? You think about how old you are right now. 30 years old was the expectation. Uh, in 1800, right, today it's, not, today it's 72. That's the global one. Uh, in 1800, 60% of nations had legalized Slavery, it was allowed. Slavery today is outlawed in all 195 nations on the planet. Um, 211 nations, if you're going by FIFA's count. Um, we can appreciate e even the little things, right, that come through this. Things like, like the streaming of so much music that you have access to, and much of it wonderful, godly music on things like Spotify. All, all these little things. Uh, now, every once in a while when we're going to go see a movie or something, our kids will... You know, we'll, ha we'll get nostalgic and tell our kids, when we were kids, here's how you found the music, what time the movie was on. You had to call a number, and it was busy, but eventually it wouldn't be busy, and you'd have to listen to this thing go around, and if you just missed your movie time, you had to wait for like four minutes for it to come back around, and inevitably your brother would yell at that moment, and you'd miss it again, and, and that's how you found out what time the movie was. And they're like, that's, hey, Suri, what time is Barbie on? That's how they find it, right? So you got this, this, all these advancements that, right? Now, the, the bottom line, though, is, is that we can and we should be grateful for many of the accomplishments in, in our culture, even those by men and women who do not know the Lord. Be grateful for advanced medicine and medical procedures, for works of art and literature, for efficient transportation, for technological wonders, for systems of government and culinary delights like, like cream brulee and like nacho fries, right? Be thankful for these things. And in other words, every good gift comes from our God, the Father of lights, and sometimes it providentially comes to the hands of those who actually reject our glorious Lord. You can enjoy even things that come from a culture that does not love God. So then, that's the one error, right? Is that we reject everything as evil um, in that way. The, the other wrong view in culture is to embrace such a secular view of the world that you begin to believe that cultural achievement and success is all that matters. That that's what life is all about. That that's why you're here. To, to want nothing but promotions and wealth and accolades for achievement. To, to love secular you know, culture over and against the Lord himself. 
In, in other words, to be worldly minded instead of spiritually minded as we are called to be. To, to love the culture but to be apathetic towards the Lord. And in our passage, right, for all the wonderful accomplishments, who doesn't love you know, stringed instruments and tools. No one wants to hammer a nail with their hand, right? But still, there is great evil in this Canaanite culture as well that we see here, and, and included in the, the instruments of bronze, right, and iron in verse 22. I know on a quick reading, you're like, oh, he's talking about musical instruments. It's all instruments. I believe it's literally hammers what that means there. But, you know, um, this would have included weapons, right, that could, be, could absolutely be used for righteousness or righteously for protecting Something others. Something wrong. Please try again. Oh, sorry. Here I am talking about how great technology is. How do I make you go away? Okay, right, where was I? <laughs> um, right, can be used for protecting people, can also be used to murder people. Uh, Frances Schaefer, what did I even say that made her think I said her name? Anyway, oh, okay, that makes sense. All right, Francis Schaefer describes our patch as saying this. He says, here is humanistic culture without God. It is egoism and pride centered in man. This culture has lost the concept not only of God, but of man as one who loves his brother. You see, the city of Enoch is the first affluent society where, you know, one where obedience to God has simply been shrugged off and, and life is lived in this absolute defiance of God and forgetfulness of God. You, you, here we see this beauty of common grace standing, you know, beside this repugnant odor of, of sinful indulgence. And, and as we're going to see in the next two verses here, right, it, it, this first city is a lot like cities today. It's filled with fascinating culture, yes, but it's also filled with, with violence and murder. So let's, let's have a look then at verse 23 here, right? This, this is a poem. It's more likely a song uh, sung by Lamech, and it's addressed to his wives, probably the number one hit of the year in their town, um, now, due to the violent subject matter here, this has historically actually been called the Song of the Sword, is what it's known as. Now, let me, let me read it to you again. Ada and Zilla, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Now, just in case... Years ago, I read that last bit, and I thought, oh, so he's murdered a guy, but now he feels bad, and he's like, my punishment should be 77 times worse. It's not a lament. That's not what's going on. It's, it's the boast of an evil man's what's going here. This, this, in fact, is the first time in history that someone actually celebrates their sin with a song like this. Now, it's not the last time. You know this, right? So much of our modern music also celebrates violence and greed and, and sexual sin and sins of all sorts. Now, now also, Lamech has, has killed a man here for, for wounding him. And it's not just a man, is it, right? If you look there, what, what age is this man? He is, he says, a young man. Uh, the, the, the Hebrew actually suggests that this man is young enough that we might even call him a boy. Uh, further, the, the boy only wounded him, and Lamech's response of, of murder is absolutely out of proportion to what was done to him. You know, people in general, are often disgusted by this Old Testament practice called an eye for an eye, right? If you stab someone's eye out, then the next person stabs the eye out, and, and you and I are like, yeah, there's probably better ways to handle that. Uh, but, but at the heart, what we're getting at here is it, it's about justice. It's, it's about restraining this out-of-proportion vengeance like we are seeing in, in this example here. And, and the final boast of Lamech's song is in verse 24 here where he says, 
Sure, the, the consequence for killing Cain was going to be seven times worse. Uh, but the, you know, than killing, you know, than Cain himself received for killing Abel. But, you know, the threat that Lamech is making here, the boast he's making, listen, if anyone comes after me to revenge her, avenge this, this young man that I have killed, that I myself will make sure that the vengeance on you is 77 times as much, which mathematically is like a billion gazillion, I think, if that's right. He is basically saying, right, if you so much as tie my shoelaces together, I will murder your whole family. That's a little out of proportion. It's not justice. It, it, now, it's interesting, right, our, our Lord Jesus, right, referenced Lamech's song uh, when, he, when teaching about mercy and forgiveness, right? Maybe you remember the Apostle Peter, uh, they're talking, and in Matthew 18, 21, he asks Jesus, he says, Lord... How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? When he's asking, I have to forgive him, right? As many as seven times? Like after seven, I can be done with it. And most of you probably can relate to that at somebody, or, you know, right? Now Jesus responds with this line that you're now going to recognize from this passage. He says to Peter, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. You see, Lamech uses that number for exponential vengeance and violence, and Jesus, our Lord, uses that number for exponential mercy and forgiveness. He turns it on its head. And so that, that there concludes the line of Cain, and it brings us to this, this parallel story that tells us about this, the better line, right? The, the line of Seth. And, and we're just going to start it today because there's a little bit here in chapter 4 and then it continues in chapter 5 and we'll see that uh, chapter 5 when we get to the new year. Uh, so, so look at verse 15 here, right? The Lord gives Adam and Eve, he gives them a third son and again, this is probably not long after Cain had murdered Abel and Eve names him Seth. And as she gives the reason for this, you, you, can, you can almost feel her maternal pain in, in what she says here. God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Now do you hear in that, that phrase also here, right? The phrase, another offspring. Do you hear the echo of the promise of God that we keep coming back to, right? Genesis 3.15 I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's not crazy to suppose that Eve is looking at Seth now as the fulfillment of the promise. You see, Seth's name literally means appointed, right? She's seeing him, she's understanding this, that Seth is the one whom God has appointed the promise to come through. And it's odd because we move really quickly right past Seth, don't we? And that takes us to our last verse today, verse 26, which tells us when Seth later on had a son and named him Enosh. And, and then this very last line is a big deal. Have a look at it. Moses writes, At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And that's people in Seth's line. That's what he's talking about. Now I want to show you two things here. Uh, first of all, what does it mean to actually call upon the name of the Lord? You see, at the most basic level, to call upon the name of the Lord is this, this coming together to pray, coming together to worship the Lord. This, this is the beginning uh, of God's people gathering together for corporate public worship. Not as formal as you're seeing right here, but that's what you're participating in today, right? A, a corporate public worship service. It's open to anyone to come into. Now, it, it also means we proclaim the praises of our Lord to the entire world. For First Chronicles 16.8, after the, the, the Ark of the Covenant is placed into the tabernacle, after the sacrifices have been made, right? They, they worship the Lord and listen to what they say. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, 
Call upon his name. Now listen, because it's going to describe what calling on the name of the Lord is here. It says, make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. They sing the praises of the Lord. They sing the praise of the Lord like a, a young man or woman sings the praises of their beloved. They're calling on the Lord for those, uh, this, this calling on the Lord in the line of Seth, right? It, it would have included things like sacrificial offerings, like, like Abel was bringing to the Lord previously. And I, I, I say this, right, because in Genesis 12, 8, we read of Abraham and it says, He built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. You see, since the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross, the once final sacrifice, and the resurrection from the grave, right, calling on the name still continues, right? To today you call upon the name of the Lord when, when you trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, when you trust Him for the salvation of your body and for your soul. As we learn regarding the name of Jesus in Acts, Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And this calling on Jesus is made more explicit in Romans 10.13 where Paul writes, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I think that leaves us with a few questions here. Did you look to Jesus with faith? Did you seek to worship the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength? Did you go to the Lord in prayer? Did you make corporate worship more than an afterthought? Do you, do you make it a priority in your life? Now listen, I don't know where you're at. Maybe your heart's lukewarm today. Maybe that's been a struggle. Maybe not, right? But if it is, right, the first thing you need to do is just confess that to the Lord and ask Him to, to stir your affections so that you will earnestly call upon His name. So that's the first thing. The second thing I want you to see is, is how this last phrase really draws us to make this, this contrast between the line of Cain and the line of Seth. It's, it's two distinct things. Cain's line here is remembered for so much cultural progress in the arts, in the metalworking, in agriculture. But there's also polygamy and violence. There's so much stuff that is listed there as accomplishments and so much that we see go wrong. But, but, but Seth's line, right, the other line, is only remembered for one single thing. There's only one thing listed here. And it's the one thing that really matters for calling upon the name of the Lord. Kenneth Matthew words this idea more beautifully than I can. He says, Cain's firstborn and successors, and successors pioneered cities and civilized arts, but Seth's firstborn and successors pioneered worship. So here in Genesis 4, we, we see two cultures at work. Those Two are the, the, those who are indifferent to God and embrace sin and those who worship the Lord. And again, it begs us to ask this question. What, what sort of culture is our nation today? Bring it a little closer. What, what sort of culture is the, the church widely in general today? Or what sort of culture dwells in your house today? What's the culture that rules in your heart, even? And so let us give thanks to the Lord for so much advancement in, in medicine, in arts, technology, in food. 
in all that's wrapped up in, in what we call culture. I, I pray, in fact, that the Lord will, will give you all opportunities to contribute greatly to the culture that we dwell in. I love to see that. But, but most, the most significant thing any of us can do in this life remains that you call upon the name of the Lord. That you trust in Him for your salvation. That you worship Him with all your being. That you, that you sing His praises and proclaim His grace to all the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that there are good reasons for us to call upon Your name. And yet, few among us take full advantage of Your invitation to, to pray to You to share our hearts, to confess our sins, to request wisdom, to, to plead for help or mercy, to ask for strength, to, to pour out our gratitude, to wholeheartedly worship you, to be wholly devoted to you. Holy Spirit, we, we call upon your name and we ask you to take our hands and work with them. Take our lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think with them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you, with love for all your covenant people, and with love for the lost who need a Savior. And, and this we pray in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.